This is episode 348, dated Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. You are listening to the In Perspective weekly podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to In Perspective. I am Bob Branco. This is episode 348, dated Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. Before we continue, let me introduce Peter Alchel, my good friend and co-host. Peter, from what I understand, it's still raining up in Coos Bay. What's happening up there? No, the sun's out. It's 60 degrees. We're going to have great weather for three days, and then we might have snow. Which almost never happens at Coos Bay. So mm. then know. I made a false I made a false assumption because when you were asked about your dog and he said he didn't you said he didn't like the the, the deep water. I thought it was still raining. No, it, it rains here all the time, but right now it's gorgeous. Wonderful. It's sunny and cool out here in the Northeast. Before we continue, let me thank those people who make it possible for In Perspective to be aired. We start out with our producer Raymond Gay. Thank you for what you do. Tom and Lynn from Rosie's Place Chatline, thank you for posting our shows on Bulletin Board 15. I also want to thank the media sources for airing us when they do. Thank you for that. Along with Jacqueline Sylvia, our web designer, JS Web Solutions. She archives in perspective on my website. All you have to do to find archive programs is to go to www.brancoevents.com. Arrow down until you get to in Perspective Podcasts, click on those, and you will hear all of our archives, or most of them anyway, from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. Let me also thank Cindy for acting as our host for today. Cindy, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and to help us out today, and of course, Herbie for live streaming on ACB Media 5. And as a result of the live stream, let me give out my email address for people who have questions about In Perspective and its format and its topics. That would be bobbranco93 at gmail.com. That's bobbranco, B-O-B-B-R-A-N-C-O, 93 at gmail.com. It's a pleasure to introduce our guest for today's program. His name is Anthony Corona. He is an advocate for the LGBT, also for autistic blindness. He's an, as he said in his bio, and this is the first time I've heard this expression, it's sort of like a tongue twister, if you say it too fast. A- avid advocator. Say that three times fast. <laughs> Anthony is a, Anthony the avid advocator. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Anthony. We're glad to have you. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> so, Anthony, let's start. With the fact that usually we all know that we usually record this show on Friday. Yes. But we, we made an exception today because of your, uh, what's going on for you tomorrow. Talk about what's going on with, with you tomorrow. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for making the exception. I took a position with an organization called Open Doors Organization, and they do work in the advocacy space. They're also responsible for those forms that you fill out for guide dogs for some of the airlines. And they work with Amtrak, which is what I'm going to be doing, going around the country doing disability etiquette training as well as ADA compliance training. And tomorrow is my first training event in Sanford, Orlando. So I'll be up at like 5 a.m. on a plane by 8 and back on a plane by 7 to come back home. 
<laughs> Sanford, Orlando? Uh, Sanford, Florida. Excuse oh. me. I'm flying into Orlando. Okay. <laughs> well, c- congratulations. Uh, talk about how you got that job. You know what? Honestly, this is one of those situations where it was networking. I had done one of, I host on Sunday edition on ACB media and I had done a program about employment and somebody had reached out giving me the opportunity to share the opportunity. And I read through it and like, wow, I'll share this because I know they need more than one person, but Hey, I'm my skill sets match this pretty, you know, pretty darn well. And lo and behold, they thought so too. And, and again, tomorrow's my first outing. <laughs> well, congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. Talk Thank about you. what advocacy means to you. And also I suspect based on your bio that you said that advocacy has been an important part of your life. So talk about that whole advocacy piece. What does it mean? And how have you sort of fallen into advocacy? For me, I think advocacy means, you know, leveling the playing field. And, and striving towards a place where we can all experience all the facets of life in communal ways, in ways that, you know, you and I may not, you know, may not experience things the same exact way, but we should be able to experience the same things at the same levels. And, and at the core of it, I think that's what advocacy really means. I grew up in New York City. I was very lucky to to live in a, you know, the greatest city in the world. But, you know, even in New York, there were inequities that I encountered from a very young age. And just something in me always wanted to be, you know, the big brother, the the helper, the, you know, the kid that that picks, you know, out the ones that need a little bit of extra attention or a little bit of help. And that turned, you know, later on in, in, in life, it turned into advocacy. And I started in the autism arena because when I was 13 years old, I got a city job. They used to pay kids during the summer to work at programs. And I got paired up with the Eden school, school for autism. And I absolutely fell in love with the kids. And that started my advocacy journey. Anthony, I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday about autism, and it was my impression that the term autism is, is a new term, that people who had this disability way back in the past weren't known as autistic people. Am I correct about that? Yeah, so autism is a spectrum, and so it presents itself in many different ways. And, you know, going back to, like, the 1500s, things that that were presenting as you know possession and and demon spirits and things were probably autistic behaviors all through our history if we look back at at testimonials you can kind of pick out folks that were probably on the autistic spectrum you know even even in the last 25 30 years the definition has has continued to shift because like blindness it's it's not a one size fits all diagnosis there are nonverbal, there are very high functioning, there are, you know, pieces that are considered Asperger syndrome, which is on the spectrum as well. So, you know, one autistic child does not necessarily learn and match another one. And so it's, it's a very hard diagnosis to, to live with and to, and to provide services for, especially in the younger ages, because you have to figure out exactly how they learn. What are they experiencing and try to figure out what is their brain translating what they're experiencing into their own personal knowledge? And once you kind of figure out that key, 
the learning really like a snap takes off. Anthony, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a sense that autism has become more of a, at least more diagnosed or more of a problem or however you want to frame it. Is there any evidence out there that talks about, you know, with all these additional chemicals and hormones being pumped into the air, that that might be contributing to the increase? Or is it more of a, you know, just a more more diagnosed? I think it's a combination of both, to be honest, and I'm going to debunk, debunk right now. It has been scientifically proven over and over again that autism is not caused by vaccines. However, like a lot of our diseases, especially COPD and, and lung diseases, it's exasperated by air conditioning and heating during the cooling and heating periods. It's exasperated by chemicals that are in the air. The highest level of autism in the entire world is where I'm from, Staten Island, New York, where the Eden School is. And we have a firm belief, and there are scientific studies being done right now that are proving it, it came from the world's largest landfill, which also happened to be in Staten Island, New York. So, you know, you kind of do two and two and put that plus symbol in the middle, and it equals autism. That's really interesting and disturbing, of course. Yes. And I want to I, I want to talk about your, your background as a journalist. You worked for uh, what AP, I think, in the Village Voice. I did. Talk about that experience and talk about how that's connected with your advocacy work. Well, I, my degree is in recreational therapy, and I went right to work with the with the Eden School for Autism. I did early intervention. I did ABA behavioral analysis, and I did a lot of family planning and structuring. One of the things that that is very you know hurtful for a family is to have a child and have other children and trying to balance the needs with two working parents or in a lot of cases, one single parent and trying to, you know, trying to manage all of those competing needs. But unfortunately the, the pay is, is not great. So prior to get starting off in my journalism life, I always worked two, sometimes three jobs in retail, in supermarkets, various other things, but I always wrote. And I had had a bunch of short stories published and I saw a listing for a job at the Village Voice in the entertainment field and I went for it and they gave it to me. And about two years later, a headhunter approached me. The Associated Press was looking for someone to head up their cultural and arts department. I was there for about seven months and really revamped the that division. And they asked me to temporarily take the entertainment division, which uh, taking out sports, the entertainment division generates more profits than the rest of the entire company combined, again, taking out sports. So that was a huge ask, and I was grateful to do it. I didn't think I would be there, you know, for as long as I was, but I spent 10 and a half years as the East Coast entertainment editor of the Associated Press. And how has that impacted the way you think about advocacy, all that work and that writing and that reporting and that journalism? How has it impacted the way you think about advocacy? Well, one of the things that we, you know, that we tell new advocators or, you know, green advocators is that that personal story is always a hook. And I'm definitely a star storyteller. So, you know, between that and getting the word out, using the media for good, you know, I, I got to the point when I lost my eyesight, when I was right before I lost my eyesight, that I, I was thinking to myself, if I have to tape, type the name Kardashian one more time, I really did want to move into more editorial, political kind of writing. 
And so I, I think that using the media for good is, is a great advocate, you know, a great tool in the advocacy toolbox. So you mentioned losing your sight. Talk about that. You're, you're obviously doing quite well for yourself in the journalism arena and talk about how your loss of sight changed things. I lost my sight. It'll be eight years this March and I had a case of shingles. It wasn't presenting outwardly on my body. It was in the tissues of my eyes, ears, and brain. I subsequently, they had to drill a hole in my skull to relieve some of the pressure off the brain. It was eating at my retinas and the tissues in my ears. I had vertigo for a while. Thankfully, I recovered from that. But unfortunately, with the eyesight, it was it was a little too little, too late to save. And that's also because years before I had had a whitewater rafting accident and had bilateral retina detachments. So my eyes were already weak. And when the shingles hit, it was in a matter of days. I went that aggravated the situation 2020 to to nothing. Yeah. So talk about how that was for you. You know, you all from you're sighted and then you're blind. I drove to the emergency room. And then they put me in a cab to an eye specialty hospital in Manhattan, and I never drove again in the space of three days. Like I said, I I lost all of it, I, and I I in a way I lost everything. I lost the Anthony that existed up until that point. I was unable to to do my job at that point, and I pushed away most of my friends and acquaintances, a lot of my family members. I didn't want people to see me that way. And, you know, immediately dove into mobility and learning how to use, you know, voice, voiceover and voice screen readers. And so for the first year or so, the first couple of months, I kept, you know, there were a couple of surgeries where they tried to see if they could restore some vision, laser away some scar tissue. And I kept thinking this next surgery is going to be the one I'll at least get enough back. Maybe I won't drive anymore, but I'll be able to work and I'll be able to get around. And then the next couple of months after that, we're trying to figure out exactly how to live. You know, I was unpartnered at the time, lived on my own since I was 17. And, you know, I still needed to make dinner every night and feed the cat and, you know, get the laundry done. done. So, yeah, it just that first year, I really didn't think much more than, you know, what do I need to do to get through today and learn these skills that I need to learn? Once the skills started to solidify, I, I then, you know, went through a period of depression and, and a therapist had said to me, you know, have you grieved your eyesight? And I'm like, no, no. How do you do that? And, you know, some therapy sessions later, I, I, I got perspective and at the same time I, I was accepted into a guide dog program and that changed the trajectory, you know, of my entire life. It really so happened. what message would you convey to people who just lost their vision and are going through adjustment issues? Because a lot of people do, obviously. What would be the message or suggestion that you would give or advice that you would give to those people to help them along with accepting the fact that they can no longer see. I would say, I would say a couple of things, if you don't mind. I I think the first thing I would say is you will learn to see in other ways. Your brain is as a brilliant or, you know, it's a brilliant machine, a brilliant organ. It will, it will teach, it will learn very quickly and it will help teach you what it needs as far as information is concerned, you know, I had a great niece who was born afterwards. I've never seen her face. 
But I know what she looks like. I can feel her. My brain fills in that information for me. The second thing I would say is, unfortunately, providers, meaning doctors and and centers and things like that, they don't give you all the information. They don't give you even close to enough information that you really need. Finding Blind Pride International, which is an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, and Guide Dog School really, as I just said, it changed the trajectory of my life. I, I started to understand what was available out there, learn even more things just by, you know, being around, you know, folks like Peter um, and and other leaders in the American, all, all members of the American Council of the Blind. And the last thing I would say is you do, you do have to grieve it and you do have to give yourself grace. You're going to spill coffee. You're going to break things. You know, I broke a, a hundred year old piece of crystal. That was my great grandmother's. And I, I, I was in a, like a three day depression, but life happens and you, you just have to pick up and keep moving. Anthony, you're, you're not the first person who's talked about how getting your first guide dog sort of changed your life as a blind person. Talk about how that worked for you. I'm a very fast talker, a fast mover. <laughs> I'm a New York Italian through and through. So the cane is not my friend. It is an amazing mobility tool. And when needed, I absolutely can use it. But, you know, I can't use it at the rate. So getting matched with my guide dog was was the opener for me to truly feel like, and I can't say that I got the world back. I got a new entrance into the world in, in the life that I was, you know, that I have to live for the next God willingly 40, 50 years. And, you know, it being, I had a cat and before that I've had other cats and I've had birds, but they're not as socially needy as a dog being responsible for another life form at that level. Also, grounded me it gave me it gave me something to feel purposeful for as we said earlier i'm i'm just starting a new position i've had a couple of contract positions throughout the last eight years but you know not working i've worked since i was 14 years old not working really gave a hit to my my masculinity my my self-confidence and even at times I, f- I felt like, God, I don't even feel as intelligent as I used to. But tying that back to the guide dog, it, it was, it was a re-entrance into the world that I wanted to live in and, and having, there is a piece where you have to trust the information that the dog is giving you. You have to trust it. You have to go with it. And for me, that happened very early on in the process. And then we were taking planes, trains, automobiles, ferries, and living and really living again. So talk about, yeah, I, and you're not the only person who's had this experience. And it is a, that's one of the things I think guide dog schools don't get enough credit for sometimes. You know, the folks who are newly blind get a dog and their whole life transforms. Yeah, uh, it really is a I'm, remarkable thing to watch. I'm very much of the impression that those that, you know, are born blind or, or lose their sight early are much better in their mobility skills. They've had, you know, that, that toddler and, and adolescent and teenage year experience to really live with it. You know, when you lose your sight suddenly and have to learn all these things, I'm, I'm now learning braille, which is oof. So hard, but I believe that, you know, had I had that experience as a kid, 
I'd be a master braille reader. Oh, of course. Absolutely. And I so, think the guide dog is sort of a little bit of a cheat on that. You you get to go back to moving at the space and pace you're used to. It's really true for me. You know, I, I love a dog compared to a cane. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. So you mentioned in passing the, the, the sort of blind pride ACB connection. Talk about how that happened for you. And how did you meet Gabriel? <laughs> so I went to guide dog school. And as much as I learned about, you know, being a handler, I also learned about the blind world. and. So many things that, you know, doctors and, and the centers that I had gone to for training just didn't, didn't share with me. And somebody that I went to guide dog school with was going to the convention in Rochester and, and needed a roommate. The roommate that they had dropped out close to last minute and it was only a five hour train right away. So he said, you know what? I'll give it a, I'll give it a try. At the same time, I had also heard about blind pride, which is the LGBTQIA plus affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. And I really wanted to get involved with them because, you know, the two section intersectionalities of my life in one organization, this is great. And funny story, I actually heard Gabriel before I met him. We were in an IRA session together and turns out both of us were giving this guy, Paul Schaefer, a hard time about one of the programs at the time. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I have to know him. Turns out later on that same night at the BPI mixer, up comes the president who introduced himself to me and, and that was Gabriel. And that started my BPI and ACB journey. And what, what is it? How is, what, how is it? How has that connection with Bly Pride influenced your life and your advocacy? It brought me back into advocacy, you know, for almost three and a half years. All I did was, was try to learn how to live as a blind person and, and try to, in my brain, I was constantly, okay, am I going to write a book? Am I going to go work for a man? I, I knew I would never go back to the Associated Press. The turnover time and technology is just not compatible with, with someone who is completely blind being able to run an entertainment department. And so, you know, I was trying to figure out how am I going to, how, how am I going to take the skills that I have and, and figure something else out? Becoming a, a blind pride member and subsequently the secretary and, and now I'm vice president gave me my advocating experiences or, or a new version of it. I still do certain things, fundraising fun in the fundraising realm for Eden and, and the autistic community. But most of my advocacy now centers on the intersectionality between blind and LGBTQ and all of the initiatives and imperatives that the American Council of the Blind work on. You, you said in passing, and I'm curious about this, about how I, I may have misheard you, but something along the lines of being blind made it very difficult or impossible to, to do the work you were doing as a journalist. Can you talk about that? What, what made it? that difficult what what made you sort of come to the conclusion that 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 was not the right direction for you so the associated press is a newswire service and so we're contacted by other news organizations for content and often it's a turnaround time of 15 minutes to a half hour yeah you know and that it, it, being the entertainment editor i, I needed visuals and no matter what the technology that was available five, six years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't quick enough and I wasn't proficient enough to be able to do that. 
there are other parts of the Associated Press that are less, the turnaround time is a lot more and, and they're less frenetic. But of course I wouldn't be making the salary. <laughs> and, and honestly, as I said, it, it felt like I was at the top of my game when this happened to me. I didn't want to go back and have to show how diminished that piece of my, my work product would be. So it was as much a personal choice as not really being able to do it. Period. Yeah. There, I mean, there is a, there is a fast pace. Is it there? And we're, oh yeah. Not, not just for journalism. I, I worked for Reuters and human resources for a while and, and, and the pace in that organization is astounding. And, and, and the pace in the private sector is, is faster than, the, the not-for-profit sector. You're, you're expected to be more on and more with it and, and more alert. And it, it's a challenge often, you know, as a blind guy to work in such a fast-paced, fast-paced environment, even with a New York attitude, right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, if, if you can't perform at the level that they're used to seeing you perform at, you know, subtly you feel those differences. Um, yeah. I have a friend of mine who lost sight, a significant amount of sight over a long period of time and he directed TV commercials, you know, and in the beginning he could have his assistant point things out that he couldn't necessarily see anymore or shadings of colors and things that were becoming difficult. But once his, once his vision plateaued to a certain point, he was no longer able to do that job because the turnaround time that's needed, you know, the days of, of, of four or five day commercial shoot are long, long gone. Yeah. You know, you need to be able to get in and out in four to five hours and have the, the entire thing done. And it's sort of the same way with the Associated Press. It's, it's such a fast business. If you can't pre- perform at the level they need you to, unfortunately, you know, they have to, escort you out <laughs> yeah it's it, it's a it's it's a real and anthony do you find that there's been a change in the culture of journalism i keep hearing this a lot that the approach to journalism in today's media is not what it once was and Absolutely. it causes a lot of different uh controversies about how media approaches certain stories and how they seem to want to be there first and it, they seem to be more aggressive, and a lot of times there's misinformation. Now, how do you feel about this concept and this speculation going around? You know, it, it, again, I don't think that there's any easy answer to a question like that. When I started out, I had 17 research assistants, three secretaries in the department, 26 or 27 reporters. By the time I was, you know, by the time this happened and, and I had to leave, we had 11 reporters, two research assistants, and one office manager. So that also plays into it. It's become clickbait. When I first started out, it was already in the transition period. Magazines were closing. Weekly periodicals were almost non-existent. The daily newspapers were becoming smaller and smaller. The integrity of journalism really in the last 25 years has gone severely down it's more about getting those 30 second clip click clips than it is about telling you know the true and entire accurate story there are some outlets that still do an incredibly good job at journalism 
but you know, the ones that we see come across our screens, you know, 12, 15 times a day are the ones that are doing it for profit and not for, you know, the love of journalism. And how does this impact the way we do our advocacy? You know, how do we, how does it impact the way we work with journalism organizations with the media, as it were, to get our point across? Well, you, you know, you need to have a sound bite, a sound clip. You have to have, you know, a 30 seconds elevator pitch story that they can get bait with, you know, outlets like the New York Times and the Post are still doing full on journalism. But, you know, all of the different sectors of life are competing for that page space, so to speak. And so, you know, to get the attention, you need a hook. How that affects us in our advocacy, I, I honestly don't think it does. I, I don't think that the media's attention gives any more force to our advocacy. I think it highlights it for people and allows them to explore more and find their own information based upon what they read in the me or hear in the media. But I, I don't think when, you know, let's say we're going to be in, in on Capitol Hill in the first week of March. I, I don't think that a news story about a piece of durable medical equipment is going to add anything to those advocacy efforts. Unfortunately, news has become 50 percent entertainment and 50 percent, you know, a learning experience, whereas, you know, in my personal view, journalism and, and news should always be 100% factual and not opinion populated. I would imagine, though, that from what you talked about, the sort of the, the hook, that when you're, when you're doing your advocacy, whether you're doing it for a journalism organization or whether you're doing it for, for Congress, given the, the faster pace, I think you still, I think you're, it seems to me that the, the, Advocacy needs to be more pointed. It needs to be more, more of a story than, you know, than hard stats. I, 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 I wonder given how society is changing, if advocacy, if the way we advocate needs to change a little bit. It's, it's funny. You should say that. I've, I've been saying that for the last couple of years within the organizations. I don't think that it's one or the other. I right. call it the marriage or the figure eight. If you don't have the data, the, it's going to fall flat and all you have is a zero. And if you don't have the story in the hook, then the top part just drapes over the bottom. And what are you left with? A zero, which right. basically means they're not going to think about you and your advocacy five minutes after you leave that office. You've got to hook them with something and then you've got to have your one pager or your opinion piece or, you know, your statistics. To remind them, I don't think in, in the amount of time that we're given to advocate in most spaces that we can, we can go through the suit to nuts and give them all the statistics and make them understand how important it is. So that story hook has to be good and then throw a couple of factuals in and follow up as soon as you possibly can. That's what advocacy really looks like right now. Will it, I also I think, think pendulum questions also helps. I'm sorry, say that again. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I think asking some good questions often helps. You know, if you, if you can find a way where a cow connects with their lives or their constituents or their. Absolutely. But they're trying to solve it, it um, and sort of tailor it to the way they think they view the world can make a huge difference as well. Especially now when we're dealing with such a fractious and, and fractured culture. 
you know, being able to communicate across those boundaries strikes me as being really important. Absolutely. And keeping it centered to the issues itself, you know, you can walk into a representative from the Democratic Party and five minutes later walk into an office from the Republican Party. If you keep it centered to the advocacy and the story hook, you really don't have to get into the, you know, the begons of of what brought them to Capitol Hill itself and the party that they're affiliated with. But, you know, the the one thing that you always want to do is is make that personal contact. You want something for them to remember you specifically. Peter, you and I have a great hook. We we come walking in the office with a dog and, you know, at least 80 percent of the people in the world love dogs. <laughs> and I use mine to the best of his ability. There really is something to that, you know, yeah. answering questions about the dog for the first 30 seconds makes a huge difference. It really does. I, I'm sorry. Okay. No, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. It's a time for questions, Bob. Yes, it is. So what I would like to remind everyone is that you're listening to In Perspective. I'm Bob Branco, and he's Peter Alchil. Our guest is Anthony Corona. And I'm going to use that expression again because it's very catchy. Anthony, the avid advocator. <laughs> Thank you. So let me turn the festivities over to Cindy, our host, to find out if anybody has raised their hands. Anybody may have a question for Anthony. Please raise your hand. Cynthia, do we yes. have any? Yes, you do. All before, right. Before you go forward, Cindy, how many hands are raised? Okay. You have, right now, right now I say two. But okay. by the time I get finished saying this, you'll have more. Okay, that's fine. So let's, 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 let's go in order as you always okay, do. Okay. We have one anxious hand raised that's been up since the beginning. Jane, you're up. <laughs> I am glad to be here. First of all, to commend Peter and Bob for your and Lord. on deck, on, on point questions. Anthony, I appreciate as always the way you focus with full attention and get to the heart of the question. You get gold stars. Peter and Anthony, I'm going to send you two people to contact, one of whom is named Stephen Sala, and he worked on James Broughton's Big Joy Project. They've spent, uh, never mind, I'll, I'll write you why, and I'll do that. I appreciate your points on advocacy. I think that not only do we, are we fortunate to have well-bred, trained, and well-handled dogs by those of us who pay attention to it. I also really agree that questions matter. Yeah. And I commend, I've, I've listened to you, Anthony, and again, I just go back and say commendations for how you have made your way through a lot of advocacy issues that got tangled up in all kinds of things along the way. But I appreciate your reputation. I appreciate what you do, how you do it, and for whom you do it, and that you're not just connected with one need for advocacy. That I, I just, that matters. That's living. So I just wanted to put that out there to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Jerry. As always. Oh, thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Cindy, who's next? Okay, Paul, you're up. Hello, Paul. Oh, okay, Lord, it's Paul. You know, 
I think uh, this is Tony, Tony Candela. I think I got relabeled as Paul. So I think, Tony? Yes, oh. Tony. Oh, you okay, were. The I don't know how Anthony. that happened, Tony. We had three Anthony's on here and I grabbed one. Well, you know, th- as, as one Italian Anthony to another Anthony, uh, I'm from the other part of New York City where there's a lot of Italians, the Bronx. Uh, <laughs> I just want to compliment you and just, I don't even have a question. Please, please, it's more or less just compliments to you on not only how smart you are, but how well spoken and how, how wise you are and that you see the multi-dimensionality of everything. And I think that there, therein is the name of the game. Nothing is simple. Any question that you answer, you always say, hey, you know, there's more than one factor to it. And I don't have a question. I just have compliments to you. And I just wanted to say them out loud. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thank you so Thank much. You, Anthony. Anthony uh, C. Also Anthony C. Actually. <laughs> And now, with a C ends in an A in both cases. Oh, you are now who you are. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Okay, Lynn, go ahead. Hi, Anthony. I have two two things. One thing, I absolutely agree with you that telling a story is very important. I also agree that you have to talk differently to Democrats and Republicans. If I would talk to Democrats in Alaska. I would talk about, you know, social justice or, or, or that stuff. If I talk to, if I talk to Republicans, I would talk to them about upward mobility and jobs and employment and, and how we want better things and upward mobility because you have to know what their language is and you have to talk their language. Thank you so much, Anthony, for being on the call. Thank you, Bob and Peter. Thank you, Lynn. You know, I want to piggyback on what Lynn just said. It is different. It is definitely different conversations for the two political structures, but it's also knowing who you're going to talk to. You know, what committees are they they on? What, you know, what bills have they sponsored? What work have they done? And how can you possibly link that to whatever, whatever the subject you're going in to advocate for? Yeah, I, I think this is really, really important. And I think we as advocates drop the ball if we don't acknowledge that we're dealing with people with differing needs and differing interests. And, and we have to modify our stories a little bit and modify the way we have the conversation, you know, to be successful. You know, the thing that, you know, they'll all tell you is they came to Washington or they came to their state, you know, your local state capital or even, you know, your local city. They came there to serve. They came there to get things done. But their approach might be diametrically opposite. So, you know, if you're going into a red office, know the things that matter to the party that, you know, that you're talking to and find ways to make what you're advocating for fit into and the same thing, you know, on the blue side of things. I think it's super important these days. Yeah. Uh, Cindy? Uh, No, sir. No, sir. All right. Well, if other hands get raised, let us know. Am I going to interrupt us? And we, we, we will, we will, uh, so Anthony, I want to sort of, sort of talk about romance. All um, right. You, you, you know, I, I don't know what happened before you went blind, but you met Gabriel. How did the, how did the whole romantic thing change after you became blind, if at all? How, how did things, how did the whole process change? And this is going to sound a little big headed, but I, I never really lacked for romantic or, you know, let's get together attention until I went blind. And that was a, a huge ego crush for me. 
and I was starting to come out of my shell and date again before I met Gabe. Honestly, the way it changed for me is I had, I had been in two long-term relationships that when I look back on it now, we were great friends and we had great chemistry in the ways that you need it, but we weren't really in love. I knew from that first night, this is the man I want to spend the rest of my life with. And thankfully it wasn't, you know, some hernia or heartburn. It really was, it was that. And it settled, it, it, it's settling me even to this day. It's settling me into the person that I was meant to be being responsible for more than just me. You know, I have him and the dogs. It it changed me into a a more global thinking person. And and I wouldn't give that up for anything. I, I was asked recently, you know, if you could have your, you know, if you could go back and not lose your sight and I, at this point, I don't think I could, I, I I know I couldn't, I, I wouldn't give up the things that I've experienced. Most importantly, being in love with, with him, I wouldn't get, go back just to have my sight back. And, and Gabe is from Honduras, if I'm, if my memory is correct. Yeah. How did that, you know, you talked about the international focus or thinking more globally is what you said. How does, does that have something to do with, uh, Gabriel's? connection with Honduras or we, uh, we say globally, what were you referring to? I was more referring to, I was very good at my job and I was very good at helping to take care of my niece and nephews, but I don't think I was that good of a person in, in the rest of my life spaces. And I've learned to experience all of life, both through eyes <laughs> that don't work anymore but eyes that see more and, and through his eyes and his experiences in some ways are very, very different than mine. He is a naturalized citizen. He became a citizen a little over 10 years ago. I'm st- you know, we both have very big, large, loud families in that respect. Latin and Italian tend to be very similar, but the experiences are, are a lot different and, and it has definitely opened up my view and, and the way I, Think about life. And you guys live, uh, 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 what I, I gather you moved to Florida to, 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 to live with Gabriel. Is that what happened? He, you moved down there. I, yes. We, we debated back and forth for a while, which was better, New York or Florida. I was tired of slipping on ice and shoveling snow. And so, you know, he has family responsibilities here in Florida that if he moved, it would be more difficult than mm-hmm. if I moved. And like I said, I got to get rid of, you know, ever having to shovel snow again. <laughs> so how are things in Florida compared to New York? And I'm sort of thinking, you know, with, with you as a, you know, a, a gay guy, Florida, at least by reputation, is not particularly friendly toward LG, the LGBTQIA community. How has, how has it been for you uh, living down there, you know, in a, in a committed relationship with a, with, with a male? You know, I'm in Miami, which is a large metropolitan city. So I think I feel a lot less of what others in my community feel here in Florida. I'm the first to say that I think my vote counts more here than it did in New York. But there are subtle, there are subtle things that I, I didn't feel in New York that I feel here, the way certain people will speak to me or speak to us as a couple. 
And I felt it in other spaces around, you know, as a journalist, I traveled all over the, in fact, many places around the world. So it's not like I never felt it before, but it, it, it's harder and it's harder to hear about the younger generations that are being, you know, exposed to very loud criticisms of, of our community, things that aren't necessarily true. You know, the whole grooming and, and you're going to get, you know, abused in a bathroom. I've, I've never heard of anyone, you know, trying to grab someone in a bathroom, but it's, it's, it's demoralizing and it makes, it makes me as a very strong, confident adult man feel bad at times. I, I think about the young, vulnerable ones who don't have the life experience and the, and the confidence and how they feel. I, 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 spoken to parents i'm the president of my local chapter and i've spoken to parents who are moving out of the state because their child is either trans or lgbtqa plus somewhere in that you know in that spectrum and they don't feel like it's safe and it's it's demoralizing so when you you say that your vote counts more in florida than in new york what do you mean well, I, you know, I was trying not to be too political, but I happen to be more, I'm, I'm a centrist Democrat. And so I think my vote counts a lot more here than it did in New York, where, you know, it's 80 to 85% Democratic. And I need to be educated a little bit on my initials. I'm familiar with LGBTQ. Tell me what the IA stands for. <laughs> I, there's a couple for each of them, but I typically means intersectional and a, a could be ambivalent or asexual. And then, uh, can you please define intersectional for us? Well, intersectional has a bunch of different meanings depending on what context, but you know, there's pansexual and demisexual and bisexual. um, Oh, 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 sexual, not sectional. Okay. Oh, well, oh, yeah. no, okay, it's, thank you for that. Yeah. It's intersectional, but okay. it's when you don't necessarily feel like one of those. I hate the word labels, but unfortunately, sometimes the word is the word is the word. When one of those labels doesn't quite fit or you feel like you're a, a pieces of a few of them. For yeah, me, intersectional is I'm blind and LGBTQ, Italian, American, and a Democrat. <laughs> And, uh, and first and, of all, and, first of all, though, you're a human being. And I think that's what absolutely. matters. First and foremost. Absolutely. So, so, you know, you started advocate, advocating when you were, you know, 12 or 13 years old, you know, when you're working with that, for, for that uh, school of, for autistic kids. What have you learned over the years? Or maybe another way of saying this is what would you say to yourself now if you're to your, Somebody who was yourself 25 years younger than you, than you are now. I said that very poorly, but you get um, the idea. I get the idea. I, I think I would say you can't win every battle and the battles that you don't win will teach you something that you'll use in a battle later on that you probably will win. I, I think I would tell myself to invest a little bit more into the stories and into the experience of those I was advocating for. And as much as I want to get something done, it's also just as important to make who I'm working with feel heard and validated and understood 
And it, it took me a while to understand that, you know, it wasn't the blindness. I, I definitely was on that path before going blind, but I was more about the results than I was about the people that we were looking to get results for. And one of the things that your, your comment sort of remind me of is this idea of teaching people to advocate for themselves, right? Absolutely. That, 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 that I think one of the things that we run the risk if we're not careful if is advocating for people who could do some of it, some of them for themselves. And so I think part of, I think what's important for us who have some experience doing this is, is to help people be better advocates for their own, for their own needs, which can be hard. I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that not everybody is an advocator. You know, not everybody is going to be comfortable in those spaces and all advocacy needs support. And so you know, collating data, writing press releases, you know, making the plans of which offices are we going to see, or there's so many different roles that don't necessarily have to be the forefront of advocacy. And they're just as important, if not more important than the ones that are going to be before the legislative assistants or the senators, you know, or talking on Capitol Hill. So that's first, but also, you know, you're, no one's going to be an advocator immediately you're not going to read an issue and be able to to you know advocate as effectively as someone like you and i who've been doing it for you know more than half our lives and so you know the grace of of maybe not hitting i don't want to say failing but the grace of maybe not hitting the target is something that i think gets lost in the shuffle all too often and then people are not burned out, but they don't want to take that chance again. So I think that there's a lot of grace that's needed in this area and also a lot of passing what we know to the next, you know, inviting them alongside, walk with me, talk with me, you know, see how we do it and then tell me what you think, you know, we could have done that that might have made it more effective or what did we do that maybe turned them off and we lost their attention. You know, it's not. It's not a classroom setting where, you know, you sit somebody down and say, these are the ways to do it. And these are the things you don't do. Every situation breeds its own, you know, it's its own life, basically. And, you know, just extending grace to those that that want to and may not see. The thing is, you think you don't know how to, but deep down inside, you do. We're all human. We all the the biggest part of advocacy is connecting. You're not going to get your point across unless you get that connection. And once you have that, you know, you can forget a statistic, the bill number. You might even forget the representative whose office you're in. But as long as you've got that connection and you can recover quickly, you can get your point across. But actually, Anthony, I was talking about being more basic than what you're talking about. I was thinking about, you know, those of us who have to advocate every day for our sort of daily needs, right? To advocate for our employer for accommodations or to advocate as a student for whatever it is we need. Or getting in and out of Lyft. <laughs> or getting in and out of Lyft. I mean, just, yep. yeah, sort of the basic stuff, the stuff that you're talking about with legislating, of course, is important and that's a sort of special skill set. But, but I also think that advocacy is also really important for each one of us in our own small way. How do you, you know, deal with it, with the hassles that we experience on a daily basis and get better at it, you know? 
without demeaning the other, but getting our needs met as best as we can. I mean, that is, for me, at least as important as advocating then the work that we do legislatively. You know, they're, they're, they're complementary to each other. And I think all of us as advocates need to support those dealing with, you know, with the daily hassles, you know, and I think the two are connected. Well, you know what? I, I agree with you very much, but I think in that space, we are, we're born advocating. You know, we, we have to tell our parents when we're hungry. We have to tell our parents when the diaper is full. And, and honestly, it's a confidence. It, it's, it's a, a knowing that what you have to say, what you are experiencing is as valid as whatever anybody else is experiencing and not be afraid to speak, you know, your truth and what you need. You know, I can cite statistics off when I'm getting denied in an Uber or a Lyft, or I can say, hey, it's the law, but more importantly, you know, you're here to do a job and I need to go somewhere. Really, is this big black dog, is that going to stop you from doing what you set out to do today? And in return, make what I have to do doubly hard? You wouldn't believe how many times that actually works. Yeah. 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 Peter, you Just have bringing it down to the human level. Seconds. <laughs> I appreciate the, 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 the warning. I Thank know. you very much, Cindy. <laughs> that, that's an important matter. There's still no hands raised? No, sir. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I just think that we were all, as you said, but all of us can get better at, at advocating. And a lot of the things that we've talked about were, were, were now were, you have a hand up. All right. Well, let's take the hand. Okay. Who okay, is Okay. Deborah, go ahead. Hello. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the things too is like I've been, I've been in meetings where when people are, are talking about their rights, like there's a right way and a wrong way to advocate. And the thing is sometimes when emotions get high, you know, and you're denied, you know, a service because of, or, you know, in, in a lot of cases, I know some folks that are living in it is like assisted living programs and they're not getting the support that uh, they need. And, Sometimes they, you know, they, they try to advocate for themselves, but the person that they're supposed to advocate for themselves too is, is not listening or they'll, they'll do something like, okay, well, we'll, we'll get around to that or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with, deal, we'll deal with it, but it never gets dealt with. And I know, like, I, I go and volunteer in a senior's home, and I find that I want to advocate for for some folks that are, they do try to tell folks what they what they want, but for some reason, it just doesn't get done. Yeah. And sometimes I, I just feel that I want to go to the front desk and say, you know, you know, Mrs. Evans would really like to have an extra cup of coffee in the afternoon. Is that really a problem? But then, because I'm a volunteer in the home, I I don't really know, I don't know how to uh, approach that without making the folks at the front desk feel that I'm just pushing people around to 
get what they what you know what they what they want. And I think we are. Uh, I think we're out of time, so I'm going to have those to wrap just, this up. Yeah, those are just points that I wanted to food for thought. And we appreciate them as well, always. The only thing I would say very quickly is relationships matter. Yeah, you know, that's um, what I was saying. Yeah, you know, make the relationship with the front desk or the yeah. care manager of the facility and yes. and conversations rather than questions or requests are sometimes more effective. Thank you. Exactly. Anthony, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Good luck with your endeavors (laughs) and keep up the good work with your advocacy, helping everybody as you always do. Take care and take care everybody. Next week, we're going to be talking about social security and SSI and related subject matters. Very important to a lot of us to know more about that and the the new changes that might take place in SSI and other related matters. Peter, thank you as always. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you to our participants. Thank you, folks. Yep. Go safe with God's abundant blessings and take care, everybody.